Hello and welcome to the Folklore Scotland podcast. Every two weeks we're going to be bringing you the best of Scottish folklore. Folklore Scotland is a charity founded to protect and preserve Scottish folklore through taking a multimedia approach to compiling and sharing folktales, telling the tales of the past with the technology of today. I am Kathy, and today we are looking at the seal hunter and the merman. And mainly, uh, we look a bit into selkie stories and selkie lore. Mostly, we're just really mean to the Victorians. Yeah, especially because the merman is not, in fact, a merman. It's a lie. It's a lie. So, <laughs> just I don't know. I, I hope you enjoy us being mean to the Victorians. And talking about magical seals. Yeah. <laughs> In a little cottage by the sea, not far from John O'Groat's house, there lived a man who caught seals and sold their valuable furs for a living. He earned a lot of money selling seal furs, for the seals would come out of the sea in large groups and lie on the rocks near his cottage to soak up the sunshine. This made it easy for the man to sneak up behind them and kill them. Some of these seals were larger than others, and the local residents of the country would whisper about them, calling them Rowan. For to them, these larger creatures were not seals at all, but instead mermen and merwomen, who hailed from their own underwater kingdom, and would don the disguise of a seal in order to come up from the waters so they could breathe in the land air. However, the seal hunter would laugh at their superstition and say that they were of the most worth, for their skins were so large that he would get extra gold for them. It so happened one day that while making his living, the hunter pierced a seal with his hunting knife. However, his aim was not true or his stroke not sure enough, and with a loud pained cry, the seal slipped off the rock and into the sea, disappearing into the waves and taking his knife with it. Displeased with this clumsiness and the loss of his knife, the seal hunter turned towards home, but on the way home for his evening meal, he met a strange gentleman on the road, a horseman so tall and strange-looking, and sitting astride a rather large horse, that the hunter had to stop and look upon him with bewilderment, casting his thoughts to who the stranger was, and from whence he came. However, the stranger also stopped and inquired about his trade. On hearing he was a seal hunter, the stranger instantly put in an order for a large number of seal skins. The hunter was very pleased, as this would mean he would gain a large sum of money. Despite this, he could not help feeling disappointed when he was told that delivering the skins that very night was necessary. I cannot do it, the hunter said, his face falling. The seals will not come back to the rocks again until morning. I can take you to a place where there are a large number of seals, the stranger answered. If you will mount behind me on my horse, I can show you. Seal hunter agreed and mounted the horse behind the stranger, and off they galloped at such a great speed that it was all the hunter could do to keep his seat. On and on they galloped, until at last they came to the edge of a tall cliff which dropped off into the sea far below. It was here the stranger pulled up his steed. Get off now, the stranger shortly said. The seal hunter did as told, and peered over the edge of the cliff once he was on solid ground, in an attempt to get a glimpse of the seals on the rocks below. 
To his astonishment, the hunter only saw the blue of the sea, which came right up to the foot of the cliff. Where are the seals you spoke of? he asked, anxious and wishing he had not been so quick in following this unknown stranger. You will soon see, the stranger answered, who was attending to his horse. The seal hunter was now in a state of fright, as he was sure that he was in danger and some wickedness was about to befall him. All at once, he realised it would be useless to cry for help, as he had been led to such a lonely cliff. All of a sudden, the stranger laid a hand on the hunter's shoulder, and he was hurled over the side of the cliff, falling into the sea with a great splash. He thought for a very brief moment that this would be his last hour and he would drown. Instead, he realised that he could breathe underwater so long as the stranger kept hold of him. As quick as they had fallen from the cliff into the sea, they sank below the waves. Down and down they sank, until at last they approached a huge arched door made of pink coral and decorated with embedded cockle shells. It opened before them, showing them into a great hall where the walls were formed of mother of pearl, and the floor was made of sea sand, smooth and firm. This hall was occupied by seals, and when the hunter turned to his companion to ask what was happening, he found to his horror that he had taken on the form of a seal. Then he got sight of himself in a mirror hanging on the wall, and found that he too had transformed into a seal. Woe to me, he said to himself, for no fault of my own this stranger has laid some baneful charm upon me, and I will remain in this awful guise for the rest of my natural life. At first none of the large creatures spoke to him. They appeared to be very sad. They moved gently about the hall, talking quietly and mournfully among themselves, or laid sadly upon the sea sand floor, as they wiped large tears from their eyes with their fins. But they soon noticed the hunter and began to whisper, prompting his companion to disappear behind a door. With his return came a large knife. Seen this before, he asked the hunter, holding it out for his inspection. And to his dismay, the hunter recognised it as the hunting knife he had lost that very morning. The hunter fell to his knees, thinking the seals would have their revenge by killing him, as he had wanted to do to one of their own. But instead they gathered around him and assured him that no harm would befall him, so long as he would do what they asked of him. Tell me what it is you want me to do, the seal hunter said, and I will do it if it is within my power to do so. In answer, his companion said, follow me, and led him through the door he had disappeared through earlier. So the seal hunter followed his companion, and there in a smaller room he found a great brown seal lying on a bed of pale pink seaweed, with a gaping wound in his side. That is my father, his companion said, the one you wounded this morning when you thought he was one of the common seals, instead of a merman who can speak and understand just as humans do. I brought you here to bind his wound, for no other hand but yours can heal him. No skills have I in the healing arts, replied the hunter, surprised at the leniency of these creatures he had unwittingly wronged. But I will do as you ask to the best of my abilities, and I am only sorry that it were my hands that had caused it. The hunter approached the bed of seaweed and began to wash and dress the seal creature's wind as well as he knew how, and the touch of his hands appeared to work like magic, for as soon as he had finished binding up the wind, it vanished, leaving only a scar, and the old seal sprang up from the bed as healthy as if he had never displaced. The seals throughout the palace began to rejoice. They laughed and talked and embraced each other in their own strange way, gathering around the old seal and rubbing their noses against his in their show of great delight at his recovery. During all of this, the seal hunter stood alone in the corner, his mind filled with dark thoughts. 
Though he now saw that the seal creatures meant him no harm, he did not relish the idea of spending the rest of his life underwater as a seal. But to his joy, his companion approached him and said, Now you are free to return home to your wife and children. I will take you back to them, but only on one condition. What is that? the hunter asked readily, thrilled at the prospect of being returned home safe and sound. That you will solemnly swear never to wind a seal again. That I will do gladly, the hunter replied, for though it meant giving up his trade, he felt that he could always turn his hand to something else if it meant regaining his proper shape once again. So he took the oath, and the seals gathered round as witnesses, and an audible sigh of relief rolled through the halls of the palace when the words were spoken, for he was the most renowned seal hunter in the north. Then he bade the seal creatures farewell, and with his companion passed through the coral doors and swam up and up until at last they broke the surface of the water far above, and with one spring they reached the top of the cliff from which he had been thrown off, where his companion's great steed was patiently waiting as it grazed on the grass. On leaving the water, their strange seal guys fell off them, so they were standing as they had been before, a plain seal hunter and a tall, well-dressed gentleman in riding attire. Get up behind me, his companion said, swinging himself into the saddle. The hunter did as he was told, taking a tight grip on his companion's coat, for he remembered how he had almost fallen off on their previous journey. And so they galloped as they had before, and it was not long before the hunter found himself standing at his very own garden gate. Once more on solid ground, the hunter held out his hand to his strange companion in order to bid him farewell. But his companion pulled out a huge bag of gold and placed it in his hand instead. You have done your part of the bargain, and we do ours, the strange gentleman said. Men shall never say that we took away an honest man's work without making reparation for it. And here is what will keep you in comfort for the rest of your natural life. And so the gentleman vanished. And when the hunter carried the bag into his cottage and turned it over on his table, he found that the gentleman had spoken the truth. The former seal hunter would be a rich man for the remainder of his days. I was just thinking it would be good to note because it was kind of one of my major impressions of the story that it's extremely sugar-coated and extremely Victorian <laughs> um, and this is kind of super common um, kind of in during the sort of Victorian Celtic fairy renaissance type thing um, when they suddenly became super interested in all of the old mm. folklore, um, they sanitized and sugar-coated and um, made cute and sweet and pretty just a lot of um, stories. And this was super clear to me in one version I read, which has the... When the seals gather around him and are like, oh, we're not going to hurt you, they say... If you just do this, we'll love you for the rest of your days. Wow. I was just like, okay. <laughs> yeah, and it's... And then, like, he he murders a bunch of them before the story. He nearly kills another one. 
and they make him a rich man for the rest of his days. Yeah, Nanny kills the one who it's kind of implied is the king mm. Rowan, I suppose. And all they ask him to do is heal him. They don't care about all of the other seals that this man has killed yeah. in his lifetime. Yeah, like he's essentially a serial killer. <laughs> Yeah, I was curious about that myself. One of the first notes that I made actually was um, if this is such a profitable enterprise for this man, why is he the only one killing these seals? And then I read somewhere that there's a, a suggestion or, or a superstition, apparently, that you only would hunt seals in particularly difficult periods mm. um yeah famine whatever so i was then wondering are we supposed to think of this man as slightly unscrupulous is he mm. breaking a taboo when you don't have to be yeah um, and that's why he's the only one hunting the seals but then again you're left with the question of how can they be quite so forgiving if he's yeah. not even doing this out of desperation I also read that um, it was like considered in Scotland and Ireland, it was considered cannibalism to eat seal meat. Um, so definitely like a last resort. And I wonder if this tale was um, like collected and um, like I said, sanitized later on and whoever... Mm wrote it down didn't have that context that we're supposed to not like this man really yeah it's really really telling as soon as you get into analysis of old stories how important the context is to inform how it's supposed to be and also then how much context that we've lost by having people collect it and write the stories who have no idea um a lot of the people who collected folk tales or at least a lot of the ones that we're left with are fairly well-off men from London who mm. went travelling around and writing down these stories. And like you say, he will have no idea of the context of what hunting seals in these local villages actually means. It just seems a very strange move from a storytelling perspective to have him like richly rewarded in the end like what's the point of this story really like it's not really warning you of killing seals because if you kill seals or like injure a seal all they'll do is get you to heal it and then they'll make you rich for the rest of your life like it's it's not it sounds like it should be a story about respecting nature respecting seals mm. But it's not. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it should be a cautionary tale. And then it doesn't really go there. Um, I suppose almost kind of like Goldilocks. Yeah. Presumably that begins as a story of, you know, don't steal from people. Don't do the bad thing. Only then, as soon as you start telling children these stories which we know the Victorians led a massive shift into, you don't want to be telling them about really severe, violent consequences for things. Yeah. 
but it does it does mean that the story doesn't really make sense from an outside perspective yeah it's like i don't like i don't really know who we're supposed to sympathize with like it's like either we're supposed to sympathize with the seals because they've like um, been getting murdered for a long time. <laughs> yeah. Except, in that case, well then why do we care about having a happy ending for the seal hunter? Or, we're meant to sympathise with the seal hunter, in which case, why are the seals these cute, cuddly things that like to, like, nuzzle him with their snouts and tell him that they, they, they really love him? Yeah. It would be different if, and again, this could easily be just context that we're missing, but if you had framed it as the seal hunter is a desperate fisherman who's doing his best to provide for his family. Yeah. And the things that he's killing are actually cute, nice, sentient creatures. Then the resolution at the end makes more sense in a way. Yeah. Because you have the whole making amends thing. Yeah. I just really think there's something missing that used to be there um i think in the sense that like we know like it it says that he like catches them sleeping he just sneaks up on them and kills mm -hmm. them it's like well that's not very like honorable yeah i was gonna say you don't even have the concept of an honorable hunter who is is out risking life and limb yeah. He's murdering sleeping seals. Yeah. I just I just really get the impression there used to be perhaps a lot more conflict in this mm. story and it's sort of just been made child friendly. <laughs> yeah, I um hadn't exactly phrased the question like that in my own head, but I did wonder why it was that this story so specifically names them Rowan instead of mm. Selkies or anything like that. So I then did some reading on other folktales with Rowan and this was really the only one I could find. Mm. And in any anthologies of fairy tale creatures and folkloric creatures, they're apparently known for being the most gentle of the water spirits. <laughs> and if this is the only story we have of them, then, <laughs> you know, yes, absolutely they are. Mm. But you don't commonly have only one story mm -hmm. about a folkloric creature. You might have a type, so the normal selkie stories. Yeah. It's always a selkie woman, but almost always a selkie woman, anyway. Um, and... But you have a lot of different versions of this that yes. have clearly got the same basic blocks, but have have diverged and become local tales of their own. If this one is basically the same all of the time, mm. that would either suggest that it's a later creation that hasn't had the time to develop, or, like you said, that it's been really heavily chopped up and sanitised and yeah. is now just this 
fairly conflictless story. Yeah. And like in the different versions I was reading, um, so the so um the motif of the person who did the harm being the only one who can heal it is common. So I was expecting to read different versions and find maybe sometimes the knife is still in the seal and he has to be the one to mm-hmm. remove it and then it heals. Like I was expecting small variations like that, yeah. but there's just none. <laughs> like it's the same every time. Yeah, um, it's not even like you have variation of sometimes it's a knife, sometimes it's a spear, sometimes mm. the rowan is still caught in a net or has been injured by the boat or something. It's always exactly the same. Yeah, and it's it's always the father of the of the guy who kidnaps him. It's there's no variation, and mostly the only variation is in like occasional like wording changes. That's it. Yeah, it's as far as I've seen, always also near John O'Groats. Yeah. You know, there's that's not the normal thing that you find if you're analysing something that's a true folk tale. It should have different local variations. So I found that um, sometimes it was considered that harbour seals were just seals and seals from further out in the ocean were the seals that could turn into selkies. Um, but I also know that selkie just means seal so and then in this story we have the he's saying like the big seals um or it's saying the big seals are the ones that can turn into humans the little seals can't and it's fine to kill them but um equally i also just find like you shouldn't kill seals ever because they all might turn into Mm. people yeah it's and that then is the type of variation you would expect to see. In some places you just never kill seals, in some there's just mm-hmm. specific types. I think I saw like the crested seal or something is mm. one that apparently might be a selkie or a rowan, which apparently also just means seal. Yeah, it makes me maybe wonder if like with the fact that these words um, that come from Scots and Gaelic t- words for seal, the fact that they just mean seal and then we're thinking this story has Victorian influence and then would be written in English or they then sort of, have we got people who have like a general superstition about all seals and then like the words selkie is being heard as only referring to a specific type of supernatural creature as, as opposed to mm. all seals when it's then put into an English language story. I don't know. Yeah, it could easily be. Uh, it's one thing that's really, really evident if you try and read any kind of translation. It's really, really hard to do convincingly and respectfully of the context and the connotations of the original language. So I I did find um, some references to just the fact that the original stories about selkies and seal people are um, des- 
described as entities that struck terror into believers. Mm. Um, they're much more along the lines of drowning sailors and taking vengeance against fishermen, I guess. Is that yeah. I saw a really interesting paragraph in an anthology that said, if a drop of selkie blood fell into the water, that would cause a storm and sink the ship of mm. the people who'd killed her. Mm-hmm. Now, that's a traditional water spirit, respect nature, your actions have consequences type of moral. Yes. Um, it's also really metal and I really like it. <laughs> um, you get your vengeance, girl. Um, but yeah, it's it seems strange that we've... Well, not strange. It was the Victorians. It seems sad <laughs> that we've lost that admittedly slightly more bloodthirsty, but also uh, at least it seems a lot more genuine yeah. to still have that angle. Because a lot of the old folk tales were really quite violent for our modern day sensibilities. Yeah. But I think it makes sense. If you have yeah. a water spirit and you treat it badly, mm. it's going to kill you. The sea will do that by itself. Mm-hmm. Your incarnate form of it should also presumably have that power and use it. Yeah. And it, it kind of comes back to um, like just the fact that I mean, sailors are stereotypically superstitious, Mm. but it's it's because in the past uh, it was a much more volatile world to live in. Um, The sea is a dangerous place, and any way of feeling like you had some control of Mm. um, your life and the amount of danger you would be in um, is in a way comforting. So it's like, don't kill seals and you'll be fine. Yeah, uh, I think it's why a lot of little cultural stories like this are are used to transmit wisdom through the years. Because, you know, if, if we teach everyone to take care and not do dangerous, irresponsible things in the middle of the ocean and around the shore and try to be respectful of nature, then you increase your chances of coming home safe. And that's kind of the main thing if you're in a probably subsistence level community. Mm. It's important that everyone comes home with whatever resource they were out getting. So, the sort of the gentleman guys that the um, Selkie comes to him in. That's pretty pretty common um, in sort of fairy folk. They're perceived to be like lords and ladies and like live in palaces and nice places and they appear to be like aristocracy mm. and then they turn out that they're kidnapping you and taking you to somewhere <laughs> <laughs> that you don't think you can get back from. I don't know if I have much to say about it other than that it's common and it suggests that the like that probably yeah that's like a princely selkie and the dying one is the king probably. Mm. 
Yeah, I suppose the um, mysterious disguised stranger trope, as you said, classic. Mm. But also I remember hearing, actually from Graham, on one of our, I guess, sister episodes, Mm. um, that there's a theory that Kelpies and that sort of water spirit who's then either a man or a sort of very princely looking horse on land and then spirits women away and possibly kills them was a story that people would tell to try and prevent women going off and marrying outside of the community and marrying Mm. foreigners and I guess an early concept of stranger danger Mm. Um, which again this could be Kind of trying to imply, and we certainly tabby have oh, tabbies. We have a sneezing cat. So in the story, the hunter has, uh, you know, a few a few thoughts to himself that he was considerably too trusting of this stranger, mm-hmm. and now might well die or never be able to return home, and it was kind of his own fault for just getting on the back of a stranger's horse and being (laughs) spirited away. Mm. Um, Obviously, I do think if you were in this situation, that's exactly what you'd be thinking. Realism. But (laughs) if you're telling this as a moralistic kind of story, it's also the kind of thing that you want to remind your probably impressionable children that this would be scary and dangerous and you would feel that in the moment so you just shouldn't do it in the first place that read would probably also support um there's a theory that selkie stories came from the inhabitants of like orkney shetland and north scotland um seeing the sami people that came with the vikings um who apparently wore seal skins and were like very competent watermen so that combined with like seals look human in their eyes and they make sort of mm. human kind of sobbing sounds and like strange strange noises there's that and you can imagine if they did meet um seal skin wearing people from abroad um maybe maybe people did um go and marry them instead and that was frowned upon. <laughs> yeah, and also, because I, I read the same theory and thought it was very interesting, but then I can see how you would then want to tell a story, if you're frowning upon it, of marrying strangers is dangerous, but eventually then making them magical seals feels like it's something that happens a few generations down the line when that doesn't happen as much and you don't meet any Sami people and almost the conscious memory that these were actual people and not seals disappears and you just get left with these strange stories Mm. that then become magical when they weren't. And then there is some like evidence um, for the selkie stories be like springing up just 
because of people's interpretation of seals like with the human eyes and the like mm. human sounds um like i heard or i saw one story that was about um someone walking and like being sure that they could hear a woman sobbing and crying and then it would kind of alternate between human sobs and like strange animal growls and then they would round the corner and it would be just a seal and mm. then they would um say to themselves oh, that's a selkie and that one like the theory that it was like purely just organically out of that um, maybe the seal skin element came from the Sami people but that theory would be supported by the existence of like fox women stories in other cultures mm. super common and also foxes scream <laughs> like like humans it's very unsettling yeah, and it makes sense that you would then try to make that less unsettling by being able to explain it and just saying, well, they sound like humans because they're magical and sometimes they are humans. Mm. And isn't that just kind of fun and interesting and something that we now understand so it's less intimidating and we have some control over it and it's actually all fine darling children of mine, you can go to sleep. <laughs> like we touched on um, Selkies having power to create storms and stuff and I think just kind of one, one of those things where it's like they used to be more sort of like um, closer to a kind of small deity mm. similar to fairies. Like you have the fairies in the land and the selkies in the sea and the story about um fairies being fallen angels that felt like rebelled against god and fell to earth the selkies are supposed to be the ones that fell into the ocean i mean wow yeah <laughs> it's a story there's also some stuff about them being maybe um the souls of drowned people or mm. um, people who have done something wrong and have been reincarnated as a seal and that's kind of just continuing a theme of kind of blurred line between the fairy world and the land of the dead mm -hmm. people are never really sure um whether these are separate people or souls of the dead or both yeah and it makes sense from a, a human psychology perspective, everyone has a fear of death and dying and losing people, so it makes sense that we would want to tell stories where you could either A, be reunited with dead loved ones, or by contrast, people who have done you wrong but died before you were satisfied or felt like they'd received justice would face penalties for that in in the next life or the afterlife depending on the culture the thing that this story has that you don't really see in other seal people stories is that the hunter himself gets turned into a seal briefly mm -hmm. and that's just not really a thing in any other um stories as far as i can tell unless it's linked to like if you do something wrong you'll get turned into a selkie but 
Mm, yeah, that would be an interesting link because that was one of the other little notes that I'd made in terms of Selkies famously they have to have a skin that will help them change back and forth. Neither the distinguished gentleman nor the hunter require any kind of skin to to change from seal to human and back again. It just seems to happen. This could be something that you we've lost in subsequent tellings and maybe the Rowan did become did begin even um, as much more selkie based and especially with the things that we've said about maybe originating with the Sami people you already have the seal skin idea built in to a potential origin but if you don't if the origin stories are different or the rower actually are an entirely different creature to selkies that we've just lost a lot of other tales mm. about then it's very interesting that they would use this magical power uh, like for free yeah. on him and there not be any kind of real long-term consequences or even attempt at explaining how it is that they can change back and forth so easily. I kind of think a much more natural end to the story would be like him getting stuck as a seal for the rest of his life or even just being returned to a human but ha having to find another trade not yeah. just being magically rewarded but um yeah or you could even have he turns back into a human but now has webbed feet and hands yeah. and it's a reminder till the end of his days to not hunt seals and mm. that no one around should hunt seals either so i did read some things because there's there's like certain there's families in um scotland and ireland and um on the isle of man that um part of their family legend is that they're descended from selkies mm. and it i read that it was thought that those kind of stories came up to explain um deformities like webbed feet and hands or um, clubbed hands so it would it would make sense if you had those elements in the story as a kind of lasting consequence of him being turned into a seal. Yeah it's the thing it feels like it's something that's right there and really easy to just bake into the background of your story. Yeah. A really nice little piece of explanatory power and then they don't. I just, I just find this a really strange one, um, and very, very, very soft and nice and cute. Yeah, I suppose I, the, the more we talk about it, the more strange it seems to me. Um, but especially that the story bothers to have him thinking, well, it would be really awful for me to be a seal for the rest of my <laughs> days. That might just be a thought. That might be a hint that in some tellings he was a seal. Mm. 
for the rest of his days. But in this nice version where mm-hmm. everything is safe, that's not going to happen. Another thing that struck me as very Victorian was just how quickly um, he sort of sees the error of his ways. Um, like, he, he doesn't really have any conflict about it. He's just like, oh no, my bad. I guess I won't do this again. And I I think that's very Victorian in the kind of like this is a nice person with morals who just immediately does the right thing and this is who you should be, kids. Um but he's not. He <laughs> like we already have him like ignoring the old superstitions, which in folk tales is generally a bad thing mm. that leads to bad endings. Yeah. We have him sneaking up on the seals and killing them dishonorably. And he just has no resistance to like changing his ways. And I just think that's generally a point in the story where the character does something more selfish or even he just is like ah, if it'll get me out of here and I think the older stories that haven't been so heavily sanitized they don't shy away from that complexity as much they don't particularly care if the main character is a good person um, but the Victorians care a lot <laughs> Victorians care a lot and they had a very um... I guess, narrow definition of what that would be. That I th- You're right, I think older versions of tales don't tend to. You're allowed to have a lot more internal complexity of, in the characters in older versions. It seems like a shame from a character perspective to lose that because it's one of the most interesting things about heroes is when they face the moment in which they don't want to be quite so heroic as normal because the stakes are very high or it's very personal or it would just be that much easier to do this thing than the other. If you had him being in very economically dire circumstances, you make him very sympathetic and interesting and also set up very, very easily a conflict in which he says, well, obviously I, I can heal your seal king, but if I take this oath to never hunt again, then I'm going to die and so is my family, and I can't do that. Mm. Like, even if, even if he just says, well, then how on earth am I going to feed myself? Mm. And then they say, we'll take care of that, we're going to give you a massive pile of fairy gold, (laughs) Um, then fine. But, like, the fact he's just like, oh, that's fine, I'll just turn my hand to another trade. No biggie. Mm. Then what's the point? (laughs) Yeah, why has he not decided he could turn his hand to another trade before? Yeah, I mean... And to me, the only answer to that is because we're supposed to dislike him because he's just taking advantage of the seals because it's easy money. Like, 
I just don't think this is a man we're meant to see rewarded, but we do, because he's just a dude. Well, and it's also the traditional ending of most fairy tales. Unless you've done something really bad, probably you'll get some fairy gold. I, th I think the ones I've read where they get the fairy gold, it's like they tend to have um, tricked the fairies in some, in some way. They've not just, like, unless, again, it's like a very nice story mm. and they just get given it but a lot of the time it's like either the gold is like cursed and every time they spend it they get more misfortune or like it vanishes after a few days if it's a genuine reward usually the fairy has been tricked it seems and then the more kind of nicer stories which we can say are later stories you get the more just like massive Disney happy went happy ending all round with um with the like escape from the circumstances and we'll throw in some money. Mm -hmm. Yes, you'll have a princess's dowry or you'll marry a princess. The Folklore Scotland podcast is brought to you by Folklore Scotland, the charity that tells the tales of the past with the technology of today. You can visit our website at folklorescotland.com. If you're keen to become a voluntary contributor or would like to get in touch, send us an email at info at folklorescotland.com. You can also find all of our social media links and a complete list of sources for today's topics in the show notes. Huge thanks to Rosie and Cathy for their work in bringing this episode to life with your narration and research. Thanks also to Joanne and Taylor for your research and writing, and of course Lindley for providing this episode's artwork. You can find Lindley's website and social media in the show notes as well. The music this week was Celtic Impulse by Kevin MacLeod. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.